Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Nudie Brains podcast. My name is Emily and I'm the host. I'm super excited to be interviewing one of my best friends, Nick, today. He is a scientific educator, communicator, and also a recreational fisherman. He helps out with a bunch of research projects here in Central California, and he also is a graphic designer. He's the one who made the logo for my podcast. So I'm super excited to talk to him about his story, challenges that he's faced becoming a scientist, um, and, you know, just his different opinions. So with that, I encourage you to um, leave a review of the podcast. Also subscribe so that you don't miss new episodes. And if you want, uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Emily, the Marine Biologist, and follow along my day-to-day life and also ask any questions you have. Without further ado, here's Nick. to be interviewing my friend Nick today for the podcast. Welcome, Nick. Hi. It's good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Nick is actually the designer of the logo for my podcast, and he's actually the first guy I'm having on my podcast. All right. So what an honor. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. What is your favorite invertebrate? I think it would have to be some sort of cephalopod, um, just because they're like immensely intelligent animals and just really cool. Like if I'm sure you've seen the videos of some octopus appearing out of nowhere on some rock because they can camouflage so well. I, I just think they're super neat. Um, they also um, are pretty common in the deep sea. And so I think there's still lots of cephalopods to be discovered. And so I kind of like the, the intrigue and always seeing these interesting videos of what cephalopods are coming up with next. So um, if I had to narrow it down, I'd say uh, cuttlefish is about as close as I could get um, cool. just because... I've had some interesting interactions with them uh, at Aquaria where, you know, you go up to the glass and they seem to sort of favor one person over another, which, which I think is really interesting. And um, every once in a while, they like you more than the person next to you, which makes you feel really good inside. And I think a few years ago, there was that octopus that was like predicting the winner of the World Cup or something like that. And Germany wanted to kill it because it kept predicting that they would lose and they would. <laughs> yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah, I mean... Really smart. <laughs> Cool. Um, why did you start studying science in the first place? Um, so I grew up in San Jose, which is uh, San Jose, California, which is not really like the most outdoorsy place. But um, I had parents that were super passionate about the outdoors. And so they were always trying to get me outside and, you know, hiking or fishing or hunting or doing something. And so I kind of grew up doing that and like running around San Jose, trying to find any puddle of water or open space I could find, trying to catch <laughs> a fish there or, um, you know, look at plants and catch bugs and stuff like that. And so I think I just sort of came about it naturally of just being fascinated with the natural world. Um, and my passion for fishing ultimately like led me to the realization that you can get a degree studying fish. And so I was like, whoa, like I hang out with fish in all my free time anyway, maybe I should go get a degree and pursue this. And um, also, I think in terms of hardcore, uh, like wanting to pursue science in academia, I guess I have to give some credit to my, uh, I guess he's my sophomore year biology teacher (laughs) in high school. Um, He was just incredibly passionate about science. He had two PhDs and was just an incredibly smart guy who was also really fun to talk to and really made learning science really fun. And so I think after I took that class, I was just kind of like, I want to, I want to be like that. You know, I want to know all this stuff, but also be able to talk about it like among friends and things. So, yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, so 
you're not technically a researcher, but what do you do? I am in marine science education, to put it broadly, um, and I work at a facility that is a free and open to the public center that teaches people about the ocean and their role in ocean conservation um, through stewardship activities. Um, our facility takes uh, school groups out and we do beach cleanups and um, teach them about plankton and we do some you know oceanography type activities off a local pier and um, just kind of expose kids to the ocean and get them excited about it um, hopefully in the same way that I was excited about science by my high school bio teacher hopefully they can leave our facility going wow the ocean is really cool and I want to take care of it or maybe even make it my job to take care of it so um, that's what I do now and um, Specifically, I, I do a lot of roles here, but um, we'll just leave it at that uh, for the sake of time. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, and so you are not necessarily a minority in science, but you do you have faced your own challenges being a scientist. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So um, I was born with a, a genetic disorder called macular dystrophy, um, and I'll describe that a little bit. Um, Many of your listeners are probably familiar with macular degeneration, which mm -hmm. is something that, um, you know, you may have heard like your grandmother or your grandfather talk about. Um, it usually affects older people, and it's basically a deterioration of your vision, which starts in the retina, which is the light-sensitive um, tissue in the back of your eye. Um, but macular dystrophy is a little bit different. It, it's not brought on by old age. Um, it's something that you're born with. It's genetic. Um, and it affects younger people. And so I have never had like perfect vision. Um, I've never been able to drive a car. Um, my vision isn't good enough to where the state of California will give me a driver's license, which is probably good for all of you listening out there because <laughs> I don't think I'd be a very safe driver. But um, it's definitely presented its own um, set of challenges within my career and sort of like how it shaped what I do. Um, if you're in science, you probably know that uh, a lot of field work jobs require you to drive around from place to place and you're often working alone. Uh, remotely sometimes, and so that's kind of ruled out those jobs for me. Um, I have done some field work working on boats, you know, to where I don't have to get around and my vision isn't a limiting factor, but um, it's definitely been a challenge trying to sort of find a job where my vision isn't holding me back in some level um, or in some way or form. So I I don't know. I mean, do you, you want me to elaborate further than that? You're or? welcome to. You okay. Have to. <laughs> All right. Perfect. So yeah, it's, it's definitely been a challenge. Um, and, uh, also like from where I am now, you know, working with the public and stuff, I think it's maybe a blessing sometimes in that, um, it allows me to connect with people who are facing adversity. Um, obviously like Emily said, I, I'm not a, a minority in science, but maybe I am, maybe I'm yeah. one of the few scientists with macular dystrophy or I guess marine science educators with macular dystrophy, but um, especially like working with kids. If I encounter a, a child who has some sort of visual impairment or like they can't read the sign, I can say, hey, yeah, me neither, but let's learn a different way. Um, and so I think that has uh, helped me in a lot of ways, uh, at least connect with people that yeah. otherwise wouldn't be able to. Yeah, definitely. And you're still very involved. Like you go out and fish all the time with local research projects and things like that. And you're a graphic designer. So <laughs> that's kind of an odd uh, juxtaposition, right? Like the blind graphic designer. Um, 
But interestingly enough, if, if I can take a minute and yeah. elaborate, it, it's I've always kind of enjoyed drawing um, as a kid. Uh, I would you know always be doodling fish and stuff. And as I got older, um, macular dystrophy is a it's a degenerative condition, so it gets worse over mm-hmm. time. Um, and I noticed over time that I wasn't able to have the control um, over my drawing instrument as well, like on paper, because I just didn't. I wasn't able to generate the level of detail that I wanted to or that I had been able to in the past. Um, and so uh, with technology, I've, able, I've been able to sort of uh, continue my drawing hobby um, because with digital illustration, you can like zoom way in yeah. on whatever you're working on and, you know, work on these tiny little details and then zoom out and like this thing, you just put an incredible amount of detail full screen on your iPad is now like a one millimeter circle <laughs> on your uh, final piece. So uh, graphic design is, is really cool. And I would encourage anyone, if you're an artist, um, you know, and you're encountering challenges like, hey, my eyes aren't what they used to be, um, check out the digital world. I mean, there's some amazing applications, some of them for free uh, that you can download on your smartphone or tablet and start right away. Like you don't have to go spend $20 a month on a illustrator subscription or anything like that. There's lots of ways to get into digital art um, and illustration. And I would definitely encourage others to do that. Yeah. Cool. And speaking of encouraging people, do you have any like words of advice or anything for people who maybe are visually impaired or have disabilities, you know, things like that, but still want to be a scientist? For sure. Um, I would say the biggest thing is um, don't don't write yourself off right away. I, that's something that I've, uh, I definitely have done in my past where I'm like, oh, I'm not even going to look because, you know, like I'm just sure they require a driver's license. You never know. Um, so it never hurts to ask. The worst they can do is say no um, in terms of making accommodations. And you'll find that uh, most of the employers I've worked for have been uh, really gracious and helped me out immensely in terms of whether it's providing a larger monitor for you at work or um, special software that lets you zoom in on your text. Um, you know, the, like I said, the worst they can do is say no. So um, it's always worth an ask and don't, don't write yourself off right away. And also uh, recognize your limitations. Like don't set yourself up to, um, you know, you know what you're capable of. And I certainly know that I know what I'm capable of and I'm not going to, go try and become a, you know, a neurosurgeon or something, right? Because I, I know that that's well out of my realm of, of possibility, but um, I know that kind of counters what I said earlier, but I, I think it's important so that you don't get discouraged, you know, mm-hmm. so you don't like encounter something and be like, yeah, I'm going to do this fully knowing that it it's probably not realistic and you're going to get frustrated and walk away. So it's a fine line of uh, knowing your limitations, but also like pushing yourself to maybe go above and beyond and just kind of um, ask for help where you need it. I mean, people in general are are pretty friendly and are going to help you out. So um, don't be afraid to ask. I guess is my advice. Cool. <laughs> well, if you're okay, we'll go away from that subject sure. and move yeah. on to climate change a little bit. Cool. Um, so what do you think, like, if you, life or death situation, uh-huh. were asked, what is the most important thing about our planet or climate that everyone needs to know? What would you say? So I think the most important thing that people should know is that the ocean plays a tremendous role in um, balancing the climate here on planet Earth uh, to make it possible for human life to even exist. Um, And so without healthy oceans, um, we could be facing even more problems than we're already starting to see now. 
Um, the oceans do a tremendous amount of uh, primary production, which helps sequester carbon out of the atmosphere to help mitigate some of the negative effects we're seeing with carbon emissions from humans. Um, and also just the ocean current systems um, with the formation of sea ice, which creates this really cold, salty water, which then sinks and moves around the planet because of Coriolis effect and wind patterns and things. It's it's way beyond me. I'm not a climate <laughs> scientist. But um, all of that stuff um, affects our own little microclimates around the globe. For example, Emily and I are here in uh, California and Central California, to be specific. And, you know, our climate and our coastal redwoods rely on this fog that gets generated from this cold upwelling that we get um, right here off the coast. And so, you know, even small changes in the climate could affect the way these currents and wind patterns move water around the planet, which isn't just going to affect the oceans. It could have negative effects on our coastal redwoods. And there's probably some tree scientist out there who's like, no, he got it all wrong. But I'm just using that as an example that it goes far beyond the ocean, right? So um, the things that we're doing on land are ultimately affecting the ocean, which is then going to come back and affect us on land even more. So um, take care of your oceans. They're more important than you may realize. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think, I think that's a really good example. And another good example I've heard is that the Gulf Stream is the only reason why England is like temperate. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be so much colder because it's so high up in latitude. If the Gulf Stream wasn't bringing warm water from like the Caribbean and stuff up, up through there, even though right. it's not super warm by the time it gets there, it still right. helps the climate out there. So yeah. I think that's really great. Um, what kind of advice do you have for young people who want to make a difference on the planet? Like maybe a career choice or, you know, something that they can do. Hmm. Um, I think that for me, um, I started out uh, as a, a classically trained biologist, right? I went to school for fisheries biology and worked uh, in some field work jobs and doing, you know, helping out in some labs and stuff. And I thought that was going to be my career path was being a research scientist and because of a number of factors, the vision thing, which we talked about earlier being one of them, um, it, it ended up switching and I started putting a lot more value on science education. Um, and don't get me wrong, I have so much respect for all the research scientists like Emily who are like in the lab, you know, doing, uh, you know, doing the hard science. But in the end, if, you know, the general public doesn't understand what scientists are doing or why we're doing it, um, they might not even see it as an important career. <laughs> like, what, what are you even doing? Um, but, you know, I think the science education and, like, whether you're working with the general public or in more formal education, just, like, trying to um, make science more part of the mainstream culture, um, I think that is really valuable to me. And so I would say that if you want to be a scientist um, or you want to get involved in science – you don't necessarily have to be a lab tech or a research scientist or get a PhD. I think there's lots of value um, that's given to science, or there's lots of support you can do for science that isn't actually science. For example, um, education is the example I just used, but also, um, you know, if you want to go be a computer programmer, yeah. uh, that's incredibly valuable for biologists, right? Because biologists love to play with like little squishy things and figure out what's going on. But a lot of times they need a computer programmer or a, an electrical engineer to design this piece of equipment that they need for their experiment. So you don't have to be a biologist to get into science. Um, 
is my my biggest advice is that if you want to work with science find something you're passionate about and then you can always apply it to some scientific field that you think is important yeah definitely <laughs> even like history or english totally maybe. yeah or math we yeah, don't like math <laughs> uh, exactly uh, i'm not a math person yeah no i'm definitely not <laughs> cool um what is one tip that you have for people who want to help the planet whether that be not use plastic uh, uh i don't know yeah i think Cutting down on single-use plastics is such an easy one, and, and that might be kind of cliche just because it's, like, all around us. Um, but in terms of, like, social interactions, uh, I'll provide this piece of advice, which is something that I have uh, sort of tried to apply myself, is that when you get online or social media or even just, like, walking around, you're going to encounter people who have, like, dramatically different views than your own, um, and they're very set in those ways. And I would encourage you maybe not to waste your time with the people on the extremes um, because that's a losing battle. But I can bet that there are people all around you who are maybe on the fence about whether or not plastic is an issue or climate change is an issue. And with just a little bit of, um, you know, education, they would easily see the light, if you will. And I think there's a, there's a lot of people that can be easily swayed um, to start making those positive choices for the planet. Um, and there's also a lot that don't think it's even an issue. And I, I would encourage you not to get in screaming matches, uh, with people on social media, uh, who are, you know, adamantly opposed to whatever you're saying and your time is better spent, um, working with those on the fence. And I'd say that's a majority of the population, um, on TV, it always looks like, you know, one person for, one person against, and so it becomes polarized, but in reality, I think it's more of a spectrum. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so maybe you kind of already answered this, but <laughs> what would be one thing that you would say to climate change deniers? Would you even engage with them then, or...? I would say cite your sources. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I would say even for uh, proponents of... Uh, climate change, it's important to cite your sources and know exactly where your information is coming from, because I know I've been guilty of sort of regurgitating facts that I hear that are supporting my side that maybe aren't 100% true. And, and I've had to have conversations with people who disagree with me um, and say, no, that's not actually the case. And you go back in and you say, wow, you know, that, um, you know, news article or whatever that I read spun it a little bit. And even though it was supporting my side, um, maybe, you know, they weren't 100% accurate on the facts because climate is a really complex issue. You know, I said earlier, I'm not a climate scientist and I stand by that because um, there's so many little nuances to things. Um, But I do think like knowing where your information is coming from is so critical because, you know, especially if you are one of the people, which I'm not, who wants to get in the weeds with um, hardcore climate deniers um, if you make one little slip up, um, that, that really puts you on your heels and doesn't do well for your argument. And if you're somebody who's like, uh, in like a high profile position, that really does a lot of damage for the overall cause. So, um, I would say be very careful with where you're getting your information. And, um, you know, I think the people who are denying it are maybe just getting their information from, you know, 
non-secure sources, I yeah. guess we'll say. Yeah. And I liked that you said, you know, it really does come from both sides. Like, if totally. I'm making an argument and my only <laughs> source of information is, like, climatechangeisreal.com. <laughs> Correct. Probably not great. Yeah, and, so. and you know, it is it is tough. Like, if you get in there and you start reading the, the primary literature on it, you're like, oh, man, like, I really don't know. Like, I should really leave this to the experts or find somebody who is sort of, you know, like this... Um, like an interpreter, basically, right? Mm -hmm. a, a climate change interpreter, somebody who synthesizes this stuff for the public and, you know, really make sure you understand it before you go yell at your friends on Instagram about it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But you have seen the effects of it happening, so it's even though we don't necessarily to totally. understand all the nuances. It's Correct. Yeah, and I think, yeah, that's an important part. Like, even in my life, like, I've seen, like, changes, um, like, locally that maybe, I don't know, they're... they're there's definitely differences, but mm -hmm. I, it's also sort of anecdotal, I guess. But yeah. I haven't been doing my own research project since I was born. So. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, all right. And um, last but certainly not least sure. is the obscure fun or pa fun. Wow. Uh, obscure pun or fact about invertebrates. You've got to be squidding me. Um, <laughs> no. Um, I, <laughs> I have lots of silly puns, but... Um, I think, fun fact, uh, just I'm going to circle it back because I always like to do that. Um, I had mentioned earlier that my favorite invert was a cuttlefish, and this is just going to kind of tie it all in because, remember, I'm a visually impaired graphic designer, which is like <laughs> kind of a paradox. So um, I think my fun fact is going to be that cuttlefish, as you probably know, are sort of like masters of disguise, and they can match texture and color of their surroundings really easily. Um, but there's strong evidence to support that cuttlefish are actually colorblind. So no one really knows how they do that so well. Um, and there's been some research to suggest that they can see how different wavelengths of light, i.e. different colors of light, um, focus through their lenses of their eye and they can maybe determine what color something is. There's also studies to say that maybe they have like light sensing um, receptors in their skin, which so they can kind of see with their skin. Eyeballs but, all over. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no one has really confirmed that yet. So it's kind of a cool mystery. So maybe just like when people scratch their heads and well, he's a visually impaired graphics artist, that's interesting. Well, think of the cuttlefish. <laughs> and wasn't there an example where they were put on a checkerboard? <clears throat> yeah. So there's a, a famous study where um, they could take these cuttlefish these poor cuttlefish and they put them on a very hard black and white checkerboard and they would immediately create their best effort at a checkerboard pattern which is just sort of these really hard lines of very contrasting um, dark and light colors um, and then they could do the same thing on like a say a blue and white checkerboard they would try a yellow and white checkerboard they would try but then if they put them on um, say like a blue and yellow checkerboard where the colors in grayscale had the same intensity, um, they wouldn't change. They would act as if they were put on just a regular white background. Um, and so that's that was sort of the first study that said, like, oh, like, yeah, they see in grayscale because if they could see in color, they would know that these are different and would, would do that same sort of hard edge um, matching pattern. But uh, they don't. And so... <laughs> that sort of launched these other researchers to say, well, maybe they're using this sort of, um, you know, 
light bending phenomenon from different wavelengths of color, but that's all just computer models at this point, and nobody's actually proven anything. So it's still a mystery. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. Well, if people want to find you on Instagram, what's your handle? Yeah, you can find me at subsurface underscore style, um, and that's for Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I currently don't have a website, um, but there might be one coming, and um, if there is, and you follow me on those other two platforms, you will definitely know about it. So, um, yeah, at Subsurface Style, um, lots of fishy illustrations and other, like, logos and stuff that I work on for people, so. Yeah, because you do commissions, too, right? I do, yeah. Yeah, um, he's pretty busy, but if you do need a commission, <laughs> highly recommend Nick because he's awesome. Perfect, yeah, and if you are looking at the logo for... Uh, the Nudie Brains podcast, that's one example of some commissioned work. So yeah. thanks, Emily, for making me a part of it. Yeah, no problem. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today, Nick, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, sounds okay, good. Thanks. Bye. Bye. So I think the most important thing is um, how critical of a role oceans play in climate on planet Earth. Uh, without oceans, it's possible that human life couldn't even exist here on planet Earth. Um, and just the fact that the oceans do a tremendous uh, amount of... Gosh, I don't... I, can I start over? Yeah. <laughs> I was just feel like I was flown on the I first know, one. I and then I got... so well. <sighs> <Sorry. clears throat>